passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And as for the rest of us, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 14. That's where we're going to be in this uh, this morning we'll be in 1 Samuel 14. Um, we've been working our way as a church uh, through the book of 1 Samuel, looking at uh, this idea that um, 1 Samuel is all about our need for a king. Um, but more specifically than that, we need a, a true king. We need the Lord's chosen king. And, and the book of 1 Samuel is a, a part of that story, revealing our need for a king. And so this morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14, as you would expect, comes right after chapter 13. And chapter 13 and 14 are, are two parts of the same story. 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 14 uh, are about the tone of Samuel or of, of Saul's reign, King Saul, um, the first king of Israel. They're all about what his reign is like. And they sum up all of Saul's reign by, by looking at one specific example from his life, and that is this battle that takes place between the people of Israel and the Philistines at a place called Michmash. That's a fun word to say, Michmash. You can go ahead and say it if you want. Uh, the story opens in chapter 13 with some, some dubious circumstances, if you will. There's this garrison, this army of Philistines, and they're, they're right in the middle of Israel. They are actually controlling part of central Israel. King Saul's son, Jonathan, at the beginning of chapter 13, defeats the Philistine garrison, but then by the end of chapter 13, things actually are worse uh, because the Philistines show up with, according to chapter 13, verse 5, troops like sand on the seashore. And so they say, all right, if you're going to rebel against our rule, we're going to show how strong we really are, and they bring this military force to reoccupy central Israel. And let's go ahead and show this picture right here. Uh, this is where we left last week uh, as we ended chapter 13. We have this picture of, of two opposing hills where the people of Israel and the, uh, and the people of Philistia are located. The, the Israelites are located here on the left in Geba, and then le just about a mile away in Michmash is the location of the Philistines. And there's this pass the only place that you can walk to connect these two uh, in between these. And by the end of chapter 13, we read these words. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So not only do the Israelites now have this threat from the Philistines a mile away, but they also now control the most important pass in central Israel. And we're left wondering, by the time we get to the end of chapter 13, what's going to happen next? Israel is in dire straits. By the time we get to 14, it gets worse. All of these troop movements that take place in chapter 13, we also see in chapter 13 that King Saul is rejected by God. King Saul is trying to mount this counterattack against the Philistines. He's instructed to wait for seven days for the prophet Samuel to show up at Gilgal. Instead, what he decides to do is go ahead and not wait those seven days. Notice what Samuel commanded Saul back in chapter 10. He says this, Seven days you shall wait until I, Samuel, come to you and show you what you shall do. 
So Saul is supposed to wait for seven days in Gilgal, waiting for Samuel to show up. And notice what will happen when Samuel shows up. Not just that Samuel will offer these burnt offerings, but more importantly, that Samuel will show Saul what to do. In other words, Samuel is reminding Saul that just because you're the king, you are still holy and utterly dependent upon God to guide you and to direct you. And Samuel, as the prophet of God, is the way that God will provide guidance to you. So before Saul makes any sort of military move, he has to consult God through the prophet. It's a reminder that he isn't, even though he's the king, he isn't the highest authority in the land. That still belongs to God. So in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we see Saul wait for seven days for Samuel, but at the very end, he says, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and ask God's blessing upon what I have already decided to do. Notice verse 12 of chapter 13, it says this. This is Saul speaking. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So Saul has been commanded as the king to seek direction from God. But then when we get to this this crisis moment in his reign, we see that he isn't seeking direction from God. He's instead already made up his mind and he's seeking favor from God for what he already has decided to do. And in doing so, Saul is rejecting God's plan for a king. And so God responds by rejecting him as a king as well. He proves himself to be a king like the nations. He's not submitting to God, the actual king of glory. Now, let's go ahead and back out even further, not just looking at 1 Samuel 13, but also 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15. Here, in 13, we see Saul is rejected by God. In 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul is again rejected by God. And sandwiched right here in the middle is chapter 14. And in chapter 14, we see the story of Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son, and even though Jonathan is from Saul's gene pool, they could not be more different. It's clear that they are polar opposites. Based off the structure of these few chapters, we should see them in contrast, that Saul is rejected by God because he refuses to submit his rule as king to God the king, and in the contrast, Jonathan shows us what a king should be like. What it looks like to put your faith into actions. And just a note on that. As I've been reading through 1 Samuel over the last couple months, I have just been blown away by Jonathan. The more I read about this man, the more I want to be like him. And it's not just because he's a really good rock climber. It's not just because he is this military stud. It's because this is a man who should be king. And yet, through no fault of his own, he loses the kingdom. It's because of his father's actions that Jonathan, this man who should be the king, loses the kingdom. And yet, instead of saying, you know what, fine, God, I'm going to just go my own way. You're God, I'm, I'm not, I get that, but, but you'll, you'll be surprised if you ever see me connecting with this David guy who's going to replace me. Instead, we see this man who is so committed to God, so committed to God's plans and purposes, his, his providential rule that he says, you know what, I'm going to not run away from this David guy who's going to replace me. 
but instead he runs toward him. It's a beautiful picture of faith. That's a picture we'll actually see this morning as we jump into this passage. I've split our passage into four parts. First, we have the standoff, then we have Jonathan's faith, finally Saul, or Saul's indecision, and then finally God's salvation. Let's go ahead and follow this uh, outline, I guess, uh, as we look at these verses. The first five verses reveal this standoff that is taking place between Israel and the people of Philistia. Go ahead and throw that picture up again. Uh, I mentioned that uh, at the very end of chapter 13, the Israelites are still in Geba, but the Philistines now control the pass as well as Michmash, and yet they stop right there. The Philistines don't continue on. Go ahead and pick up in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side, but he did not tell his father. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this word one day, or this phrase one day, it implies that something, some time has passed, that there is a standoff that has taken place. The Philistines are content. They've sent raiders throughout all of central Israel. They are content controlling things and not destroying Israel, but instead having them under their boot. And we get to verse 1, and verse 1 says, you know, one day, Jonathan decides he's going to do something about it. And it's, very, it's written very matter-of-fact-like, but the reality is it's anything but. And we're like, what? Jonathan's going to do what? He's going to go over to this Philistine encampment with troops that are like the, the number of sand on the seashore? What on earth is he thinking? And of course, it tells us that John, Jonathan doesn't tell his dad. And there's a number of suggested reasons for that. Of course, his plan needs secrecy. His dad, he doesn't want his dad to stop him. Some people say, you know what, there's probably this tension between him and his dad because he is everything his dad should be and is not. And speaking of his dad, we see what Saul is up to in verse 2. It says this, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 man, men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So notice this contrast. While Jonathan is jumping into action, we have Saul. He seems perfectly content with inaction here. On the surface, these verses seem relatively insignificant. And yet, as we stare at them or look at them more, we, we see that they give us a lot of insight into the spiritual state of King Saul at this moment. I just want to look at two things. First one is this, Saul's location. Notice that Saul is staying at the outskirts of Gibeah. Let's go ahead and throw a map up here that shows us. Now, the distance from Michmash to Gibeah is about five miles. The distance from Michmash to Geba is about one mile. And while Jonathan is located on the front lines where he can see the Philistine troops, we see that, that his dad, Saul, is content staying all the way back in Gibeah. He's not on the front lines. More, than, more significant than his location, though, is this mention of this priest named Ahijah. Let's go ahead and look at verse 3 again. It says this, Including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now, that's a genealogy. But the more we consider the significance of what is mentioned and what isn't mentioned in this genealogy, we realize how much this says about Saul. 
Remember last week in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel rebukes Saul for rejecting God as king. And then what do we see Samuel do? Well, we see that Samuel leaves Saul. Go ahead and look at Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, verse 15. It says, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. It tells us, we actually don't know where Samuel goes, but we see that Saul goes to Gibeah. This isn't just the departure of a trusted counselor. Because Samuel is the prophet of the Lord, Samuel is Saul's connection to the will of God. And so Samuel abandoning Saul right here is a part of God's rejection of Saul. It's almost as if he is saying, fine, you don't want to seek my will. You don't want to follow me. You don't want to to see what I would have you do as the king. Have it your way. Now go back to chapter 14. Here in chapter 14, so we see how Saul responds to the departure of Samuel. Samuel leaves, his connection to the will of God leaves, and now he's found another way to seek out God's will. It's this high priest Ahijah. And in one sense, you know, all well and good, but notice how Ahijah is described. First Samuel reminds us that he is a rejected priest. First Samuel chapter 2, we are told that the family of Eli is rejected as priests because of their rejection of God. And here we see that the rejected king Saul is hanging out with the rejected priest Ahijah. But that's not all. Notice in this genealogy that Ahijah's uncle Ichabod is mentioned. Genealogies don't mention uncles unless it's important. So we hear, we see these words about Ichabod, and we're brought back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, where we were introduced to Ichabod when he was born, when the people of Israel were conquered by the Philistines in essence. And we see that for Ichabod, his name means no glory, or the glory has departed. And by mentioning Ichabod here, the author of 1 Samuel is drawing this connection and saying, hey, we got, we got a rejected king here, Saul. He's hanging out with a rejected priest, Ahijah. And, and by the way, we, we can't forget about this Ichabod guy, the glory has departed or no glory. The God has rejected Saul as king. First uh, section ends with this helpful description of the land. It says this, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other was Sinna. The, other, the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Well, they say uh, a picture is worth a thousand words and so um, that's certainly true here. I have two pictures that I just want to show you here. This word crag literally just means uh, a cliff. So this is what the cliffs looked like between Michmash and Geba. And so when Jonathan says, I'm going to go down and then go back up to the the Philistine garrison at Michmash, he's going to climb down one of these. He's going to climb back up the other one. There's another picture here that shows a little bit more of what it was like. In fact, the the, the people of Israel, they had these... um, nicknames for uh, these two cliffs because of, of how treacherous they were. One of them was Bozes, which roughly means slippery, and the other was Sinna, which roughly means thorny. 
And the point is clear. By the end of this passage, we, we see this, this very daring plan from Jonathan. He's sick of the Philistine oppression. He's sick of God's people living under the rule of these uncircumcised Philistines, to use his language. And so he decides that he's going to climb down a treacherous cliff, climb up another treacherous cliff, find where the Philistines are, are least offended, attack them, and see what God will do with it. How does he hope to pull this off? Well, that's what our second section of this passage reveals to us. Jonathan's faith. Verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I love those words. Verse 6 is this beautiful picture of, of Jonathan's motivation for attacking the Philistines. It's not this quest for personal glory. It's not because he's frustrated with his father's inaction. It's not because he's overconfident in his own abilities. It's simply because he is confident in God. I would say he's, he's radically confident in God. And I read verse 6, and, and I want a faith like Jonathan on display here. It's this man who is so God-centered in his thinking that he can't help but act. He wakes up in the morning, he's thinking about the glory of God, and that leads him to say, what can I do today to make God's glory even more real to those who are around me? What would it look like for us to wake up in the morning and have that same sort of mindset, to wake up and just say, like Jonathan, what can I do today to make God's glory even more clear to those who are around me? Plain and simple, Jonathan here, his, his actions are rooted in this radical faith. That's the second time I think I've used this word radical here. I think it, it even fails to show the weight of Jonathan's faith in this passage. So just consider three brief observations about his faith here in verse 6. First, Jonathan's faith spurs him to action. It spurs him to action. We're probably familiar with the Apostle James. He wrote, faith without works is dead. And yet thousands of years before that, we have Jonathan climbing down and climbing up cliffs because of his faith. Faith is this belief that God is who he says he is, that God will do what he has said he will do. And Jonathan so believes that God is who he says he is, he so believes that God will do exactly what he has said he will do, that it leads him to high stakes action. Like he, he throws himself out there. If God doesn't come through, then he will die at the hands of the Philistines. Jonathan takes this radical action because of a radical trust in God. What about us? Does our faith lead us to radical action? Is it, is it costly for us? Another observation about his faith here is this. Jonathan's faith is confident. Notice why he takes a step of faith in verse 6. He says, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So Jonathan is supremely confident but he's not confident in his own abilities. It's not in his own intellect, but in God. He knows what God is like. He knows that even in the face of impossible odds, nothing can stop this God. 
We, we ask, well, where exactly does Jonathan's confidence come from? It's, it's from the history of God's people. He's alluding here to the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 when God saves the people of Israel from tens of thousands of Midianites through 300 men. Plain and simple, Jonathan's confidence comes from knowing how God has worked in the past. Saying, you know what, I've seen God how you have worked then and I have confidence that you will do the same thing today as well. What about you? Your faith have a radical confidence in God and, and what God has said he will do? Is your faith rooted in the story of the Bible? Are you, are you actively reading the story of the Bible to, to remind yourself of how faithful this God is? Of how confident we can be that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he has said that he will do? I remember when uh, my daughter was just first learning to swim and, and going to the pool and and uh, her, her older brother loved jumping into the water, and she was, she was super nervous about that. And it took so much effort to get her to jump into the water for the first time. She didn't believe I would catch her. She assumed that I would just, you know, all right, come, come on, come on, and then just turn, turn around and I joke, joke's on you. But after that first time where I caught her, she realized, hey, you know what? My dad is trustworthy. He is going to do what he says he will do, unless I'm not paying attention, then that's a different issue. Now she loves jumping in the water because she knows that dad is going to catch her. It's the same way with God. When we look at how God has acted in the past, it produces confidence in us that he will act in the same way in the future and today as well. So Jonathan's faith is confidence one final observation here from Jonathan's faith, and it's this. Jonathan's faith is humble. Verse 6, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Jonathan's faith spurs him to action. Jonathan's faith is confident that God is able to save his people, and yet Jonathan does not presume to know what God will do. Jonathan knows that God is God and he is not. He knows that God is able to save, but just because he is able to save doesn't mean he necessarily will save. He knows that God is sovereign and over all things, that in his mysterious providence, in his plan, he might have a reason for the people of Israel living under subjection to the Philistines. He knows that God is sovereign and he'll never be coerced to do something outside of his own will. And so Jonathan says, it may be. Some translations, I like the way they put it, perhaps. Other translations say, who knows? What a beautiful picture of humble faith. A faith that recognizes that God is God and I am not. And because of his faith, Jonathan can't help but act. And who knows? Maybe God will save his people. Nothing can stop this God from saving his people. Maybe he will use Jonathan and his armor bearers step out in faith as the catalyst to deliver his people. Notice how his armor bearer responds in verse 7. His armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. So here is this man of the same heart as Jonathan. Saul has surrounded himself as the rejected king with his rejected priest. Meanwhile, Jonathan has found a man with the same faith, active, confident, humble to accompany him. 
And who knows? God might use this to do something incredible through them. Verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan and his armor bearer said, or said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. What's going on in these verses? Well, Jonathan knows that his dad has been rejected as king uh, in, verse, in chapter 13 for not seeking God's will. And so he says, you know, it's really important for us to make sure that we are actually following the will of God. So he shares this plan with his armor bearer for discerning God's will. We're going to get to the bottom of this ravine. When we're in the bottom, the Philistines, they'll actually be able to see us. And how they respond will show us whether we are going to go up or not. And there's a lot that can be said about these verses. And, and really, the question, does this work today? Should we do things like this today? Those are in your Bible notes, uh, in, the, in the Bible app. We, I'd love for you to take a look at just some observations about how does this apply to us today. Notice what God does, though. Through the response of the Philistines, they're mockingly inviting Jonathan and his armor bearer up. And so Jonathan says, hey, you know what? This is the sign we've been waiting for. And so they scramble up the cliff wall and they're confident that this God can save by many or by few. Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a panic from God. So they get to the top of the cliff, and they catch the Philistines off guard here. And before they know what is happening, the two of them here, they're standing back to back, and they kill about 20 of these Philistines in the first encounter. We're actually even told how big the space is where this attack takes place. It's about the size of a football field, for frame of reference. And the, and the emphasis there, why it's given to us, is not a choke point where they can dwindle down the numbers. This is clearly an act of God being at work. And that's exactly what happens after this first attack. This attack sparks this panic in the camp of the Philistines. Philistines have no idea what's going on, what's happening, who's attacking them. And this isn't just natural, as though this is the, the response of this surprise attack. The text gives us the true story. There's this earthquake. And earthquakes, I don't know your familiarity with earthquakes, but earthquakes don't just happen if someone attacks unawares. This is clearly something that is sent from God. Verse 15 says that literally this panic is, is a panic from God. And Jonathan may have stepped out in faith here, but just as Jonathan expressed in verse 6, it is the Lord who is going to save his people. And so while that's happening, over in Michmash, the, the text brings us back over to Gibeah and Saul again. Consider Saul's indecision starting in verse 16. The watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. 
Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see it was gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So this panic from the Philistines is taking place a couple miles away, and it's so great that the Israelites notice it. And this turmoil in the Philistine camp is so large, but they have no idea how it has happened until they figure out that Jonathan is gone. So what will Saul do? His his enemies are in disarray. Will he attack? And this is the important question for Saul here, and and give credit where credit's due. Saul knows he he has to to see, should God want him to do this? He's he's gun-shy after chapter 13 when he presumed to act before asking God. And so that's exactly what he decides to do. He says, all right, let's go ahead and ask God. What should we do? Verse 18, so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. So Saul calls for Ahijah and says, hey, I want you to bring the ark here. I think we should read this as another sign and there's another connection back to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel 4. The last time the ark was with the people of Israel in a battle, they thought that they could coerce God to do exactly what they wanted. And, and maybe Saul is doing the same thing here. And he says, hey, hey, Ahijah, go ahead and consult God for me. And should we join in this attack or should we hold off? Credit where credit's due. He's asking the right question. And so Ahijah begins to seek God's will. Verse 19. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now we see Saul's true colors. What's taking place here? Well, he starts to seek the will of God. This phrase, withdraw your hand, is a reference to what the high priest would have been doing to seek the will of God. And so he's, he's seeking God's will, and, and Saul sees off in the distance, you know, things are getting even, even more hectic over there in Michmash. And so he says, after just a few minutes, he's like, you know what, never mind. We don't need God's will, because look at what's happening over there. Look at the turmoil. Let's go ahead and join in the battle. We don't need to ask God. I've already got this one figured out. So here we have this picture of Saul. He starts doing the right thing. And yet, just like so often in his life, he says, you know what, never mind. I really only want God's will. I really only want God's blessing on what I've already decided to do. Thank God that his salvation, his faithfulness, does not depend upon the faithfulness of Saul or people like me. Because we look at the last few verses here, we see that God saves Israel in spite of Saul. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. Here we see Saul and his army, they, they join in the battle. The text almost reads as if God doesn't actually need them to show up. God's taking care of things on his own. The Philistines are actually busy slaughtering one another because of this confusion, this panic that has been sent by God. And God's going to deliver his people on his own. Thank you very much, Saul. We don't need your help. Verse 21. 
Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and had gone out with, up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and his Jonathan and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. Maybe these verses give us a little insight into why the Philistines were, were slaughtering themselves. Apparently, there were a number of, of Israelites who had committed treason. Said, you know what? The, the Philistines are just too big. They're, they're too powerful for us to fight against. So if you can't beat them, join them. And they actually enlisted in the Philistine army. And yet then they see God intervene. They see God's at work and they realize, hey, you know what? There's actually a bigger and more impressive military power than the Philistines. Let's go ahead and go back on his side. And so they join in the battle and they start attacking their Philistine uh, once, you know, five minutes ago, the people that they were partners with in the army. Not only that, but all of these Israelites who hid in fear because of the Philistine menace, they're hiding in all of these caves, and all of a sudden they say, hey, you know what? Something's happening. God actually is who he said he is. And so they hop out, and they, they join in the battle as well. Notice how the text ends, the first half of verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Read that phrase in connection with Jonathan's statement of faith. The beginning of the, the battle and the end of the battle. It says this, and Jonathan said, it may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So the Lord saved Israel that day. What started with Jonathan's faith in action leads to this impossible victory because of God. And we come to the end of this text, and I just want us to briefly consider three applications, three things we can learn from the three, I guess, main characters, for lack of a better term, in this story. First one is Jonathan. Where do we start with Jonathan? He's so much we can learn from him here. He's this blazing star of faith and obedience. And I think that's just what we focus on. Let's focus on his faith. In Jonathan, we see that radical confidence in God leads to radical action. When you are confident in who God is, when you are confident that God is going to do what he has said he will do, it leads to radical action. It's the exact same thing today. Our faith should lead into action. Does your faith in Jesus lead you into places where you are completely and utterly dependent upon him to show up, to come through? Are you willing to do the hard things? Because you are committed to this Jesus, that you are confident in this Jesus, that your radical confidence in God leads you to radical action. I don't think it would be too much for us to say that how radical our trust and confidence and faith in God is, is revealed by the fruit of our lives, by the actions that we take or the actions that we don't take. Second, consider Saul. What do, we, what do we do with Saul in this passage? 
He's no Jonathan. If anything, his, his downfall continues in this chapter. And, and as we consider Saul in this chapter, again, we, we see this picture of this guy who, who just doesn't understand how God takes his glory so seriously. And we're warned here from this picture of Saul of the danger of treating God as nothing more than just an optional add-on to our life. That's what John, or excuse me, Saul, Saul does here. He's this rejected king. He's here with Ahijah, and he's treating God as nothing more than just this, this add-on to his life. When it's convenient, I'll seek your will, but when it's not, I'm going to go my own way. Beware the heart of Saul in this passage. Beware of a life that, that might give some semblance of, of faith, might give some semblance of, of interest in the thing, things of God on the outside, and yet is ready to dispense of the formalities of God the moment it is convenient. That's what we see from Saul here. God is searching for Jonathan's. He's not searching for Saul's. Finally, consider what this passage reveals to us about God himself. Here as we see God, I just, I just wrote down a question in my Bible. Is there anyone like this God? Is there nothing that this God cannot do? Is there nothing that is impossible for this God. That's what we should be reminded of as we read this passage. This same God who can save by many or by few is the God today who can save anyone. No matter their past, no matter how far from God they might seem, when we realize that nothing is too impossible for God, that nothing is outside of God's control, nothing is outside of God's power to accomplish. No, salvation is out of reach. It stirs up within us an even more radical faith, an even deeper confidence in who God is, an even greater willingness to follow this God. Even when the road ahead seems impossible, the cliff is impossible to climb. There's nothing too impossible for this God. That's the bedrock of faith. Who God is. And a confidence that God will do exactly what he has said that he will do. And when we tie the three lessons here, this lesson from Jonathan, this lesson from Saul, this lesson from God, we tie them together, this warning of, of the life of Saul, the, the, the faith of Jonathan, the, the glory of God, we're reminded simply of this. God is looking for those who trust him fully and follow him completely, no matter the path ahead. That's what God wants. He wants people who will trust him fully, who have confidence in who he is, who will follow him completely, not just when it's convenient, even when the path ahead seems impossible to us. What might God be asking you to do? 
What sacrifice might God be nudging you toward? Where might God be calling you to go? What would it look like for you to trust him fully and follow him completely? Will you be Saul or will you be Jonathan? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of this passage. We ask that you would help us honor you by living lives fully committed to following you, confident that you are exactly who you say you are. You will do exactly what you have said you will do. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.